Hi, this is John Beasley from Harmony UK Podcast, where I'm currently working on an edition dedicated to the exciting new wave of musical arrangers who've emerged among barbershoppers here in Britain over the past few years. Well, the podcast is coming together slowly and steadily, though I'm still not certain exactly when it's going to be out. In the meantime, though, I thought you might be interested in hearing the full interview with one of the illustrious contributors recorded in Sheffield at the end of September. Hi, my name's Sam Hubbard. I'm a barbershop singer, arranger. I sing with Hallmark of Harmony, who are the men's chorus here in Sheffield. And for the last few years, I've been doing freelance work as an arranger for barbershop groups and for other kind of vocal ensembles as well. Let me just ask you then about your, your interest in, in arrangement and how that started. I mean, does it go back as far as your, your interest in the actual singing as well? Uh, yes. I became sort of enamoured with vocal harmony from the first time I joined my school choir. I was 10 and um, I joined at first just because my friends were involved. I, I, I wasn't kind of particularly in it for any deep love of the music, but pretty quickly I became a massive choral nerd and I became very interested in how the music was put together. And so sort of throughout my teenage years, as well as doing a lot of choral music, I also found lots of stuff on the internet for other kinds of vocal music. So um, groups like the King Singers, acapella ensembles, jazz groups like the High Lows or Take Six, and of course Barbershop. And any time I heard a performance or a song that I really, really liked, I would want to sort of figure out how it was, you know, what was going on under the hood. So I spent um, a lot of my time transcribing, i.e. listening to the arrangement over and over and getting out my notation software and trying to piece together what I was hearing. And I would really recommend that, especially if you're a 15-year-old with uh, with far too much free time on your free hands. You make it sound as though you're almost like a sort of musical engineer. <laughs> well, uh, uh, arranging sort of has, has that feel, because especially in something like Barbershop, which it has a very specific set of stylisms to it. And Paul Davis, um, British judge and arranger, always describes arrange- some parts of arranging a bit like doing a Sudoku puzzle. So, you know, there's an artism there and a creativity, but there are some parts of it that do feel more technical and, and feels like they feel like things that have to go in a certain place because of what other things are doing. So it's, uh, you know, barbershop chord writing is it feels a bit like a crossword or a Sudoku sometimes. So when you were, were 15 and you were, you were listening to these songs and thinking, I wonder how they work and what happens if you pull those bits apart. Were there particular songs that appealed to you? Were there particular things about songs that, you, that, that made you more interested in some than in others? Ooh, um, I'm not sure. I, I, I think I tried to listen kind of as widely as I could. I, I think I've, I've always been more drawn to things that are quite harmonically rich. I especially liked groups like Take Six, who have kind of really zany arrangements with very, very colourful harmony and jazz, jazzical chords. I, I, I liked Light the Stuff as well. I, I, I tried to listen pretty broadly, I think. I, I was all-consuming, to be honest. I sucked up a lot of repertoire and, and a lot of groups uh, in my teenage years. And it, was, it, was pretty, it was a pretty formative experience. And, and yet the first song, certainly the first song that's listed on your page on Facebook as having been arranged by you was a very, very basic song. It was Happy <laughs> Birthday, wasn't it? Well, that's, that's the first arrangement that I've put as available for public consumption, not necessarily the first one I did. But no, I had a quartet of sorts at school in, in sick form. There was me who was obsessed with stuff like Barbershop and, and three other friends who were sort of into it a little bit and, and thought it was fun sometimes. And it was one of our classmates' birthdays. And I think someone just had the idea, oh, we should, we should, we should sing Happy Birthday to them. <laughs> I thought, oh yeah, that is a good idea. So I, th- I think I spent about two weeks trying to pen something together, 
of course, by which point it was not that person's birthday anymore and therefore useless. But I, I think we sang it once or twice in, in, in Upper Sick, much to the annoyance of whoever we were serenading. So what do you count then as your first really serious attempt at, at barbershop, for, at, at an arrangement for a barbershop quartet? Well, my first commission from a barbershop quartet was my arrangement of the Joe Stilgo song, We Should Kiss, which I arranged for the Emerald Guard. And that came about because of the fact that I joined Hallmark. So Hallmark's music leadership team consisted and still consists of Andy Allen and Tim Briggs, both of whom are members of the Emerald Guard. And they knew that I dabbled um, in the dark arts and very graciously offered to try me out and said, we've got this song we've been, wanted, we've been wanting to do. Would you like to have a go? And I spent a very long time on it. I think probably far longer than they were expecting. But I, yeah, I, they, they, they still sing it, which is very kind of them. And um, that was probably my first, my first real jab at arranging something meaty and involved. <laughs> and you've done quite a lot for the Emerald Guard. We can see why, given your links with Hallmark as well. But some of them have been quite controversial. I remember, I think three years ago at Babs, uh, they did Me and Mrs. Jones, the Billy Paul, the, mm. the, 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 the soulful song. And your arrangement was quite like Billy Paul's original in, in terms of its shape, and it was clearly recognisable. Judges weren't so keen, though. There was one in particular, yeah. I'm told, who, uh, <laughs> who who questioned whether this was really barbershop and whether they should get all the points that they were they were otherwise going to get. It straddled the line, certainly, and I think that was actually what we were aiming for. The, the, the Emerald Guard are, are known contrarians. <laughs> so you, you, you were deliberately setting out to be contrary, to see what well, you could get away with? Not setting out to be contrarian, but I, I think we were setting out to do something that was on the edge stylistically and, and that was as faithful as possible to, to the arrangement. And it, it went through several drafts, so I, I was doing a, a bit of a back and forth to them, sending, sending them a version saying, what do you think of this? And they were like, oh, we, we like we like this, but we feel it's it's a bit square here. Maybe you could... So, so it, I, I was egged on, <laughs> I think I would say, by them to, to produce something that was a bit more, you know, a bit more stylistically edgy. And yeah, and, and we it, it was a calculated risk. We knew it, we knew it, it was towing the line. Um, and, and I think that's evidenced by the fact that, that they've sung it twice in contest and one year it scored pretty well and the other year it didn't score so well. So it is... You know, it's a it's a high risk, high reward game doing content material like that. You see, I, I'm I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering, for example, uh, how, what sort of reaction you were hoping for if the one judge who looked like he'd swallowed a wasp when he heard it <laughs> um, had actually persuaded the others that maybe the Emerald Guard should be disqualified with that song. Would you would you have seen that as a bit of a feather in your cap, or would you have been deeply disappointed? <laughs> Um, neither, really. I, I guess I have a, a bit of sympathy with, with that judge's plight because I'm, I'm a music candidate myself. So I know the dilemma of, of having to assess on the spot how good of a vehicle something is. But it, yeah, it, if they decided that they really didn't like it and they gave it a 50 or something, I, th I think I would have just taken it as a, a learning experience rather than being necessarily either hugely disgruntled or, <laughs> for that matter, hugely proud. <laughs> I don't think I'd be either. There are a lot of younger British barbershop arrangers at the moment. You think mm, of uh, Nick Bryant, there's, uh, there's Hannah Briggs, there's uh, uh, Simon Arnott, mm. there, the, James Whittick, there are others. I mean, do you all see yourselves as, as sort of pushing the boundaries? Um, that's a difficult question. Uh, uh, do you mean stylistically pushing the yes, boundaries? Yeah, yeah. Um, it probably depends. It's, it's, it's case by case, I think. Um, I, th I think some of the people you've you've mentioned there arrange stuff that, that is really quite out there, and and some tend to do stuff that's a bit more accessible, a bit more what you'd expect from barbershop of the past, maybe. But it it does seem that we're we're, we're going through 
I don't know, it's a, a renaissance feels too strong of a word, but it, it does seem that their arranging is, is, is a very in thing right now, particularly among younger bulb shoppers, and I think that's a really positive thing. I think in ter- that, that's driven in part by the barbershop culture as, as a whole. So the same sort of things is happening in the States. So uh, a trail was blazed by Patrick McAlexander, who was a young guy who dabbled for a long time and then, and then suddenly got a series of very big breaks and over a, a few short years has become one of the most sought-after names in the barbershop arranging world. And you also have quartets like Instant Classic where you know all four of them range and Theo and Cole in particular have become very very popular with a lot of top groups um, so I, I think stuff like that has has helped people to feel that arranging is more accessible and that it's something that, that everyone can have a go at rather than some dark mystic magic that's reserved only for a, a few keepers of the guard uh, in terms of the people who are sort of under 35 as opposed to over 35, has it got something to do with, with the fact that a cappella has become fairly cool? You've got Deke Sharon and Pitch Perfect and, and all these things on, and, and Glee on television and so on. It, it, it does make a cappella seem much more accessible than maybe it would have done you know, to, to, to my generation when there's very little of it about in the charts particularly. I think that's true. Um, yes, I think that probably is true. But at, at the same time, I think that... A lot of the people who, who have become arrangers were involved in Barbershop before that movement, really, anyway. I've got to say myself, I've never even seen an episode of Glee, so I've, I've got no idea what I'm missing. Uh, but I am a big fan of Deke Sharon, uh, and he, he's utterly prolific, probably the most prolific vocal arranger in the world, besides maybe someone like Kirby Shaw. But yeah, I think that probably has played a role in kindling the fire of younger arrangers and also in sort of encouraging a crossover of styles so arrangers who perhaps without the likes of Deke Sharon may have just stuck to more square barbershop arrangements have, have tried experimenting with let's let's mix it up let's try some some pop charts let's give this arrangement of a Britney Spears song to the Sweet Adeline champion it's stuff like that I, I think that I think it's, it's encouraged crossover I would guess your own collection of songs is is pretty eclectic in terms of your arrangements, all Thank the way from the, the Star Spangled Banner through through Paul McCartney to uh, uh, Spice Girls, Spice Britney Spears. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Yep. <laughs> um, are you trying with those songs to develop your own style? Are you, are you hoping that eventually people will, will will hear a song and say that's a that's a Sam Hubbard arrangement? Um, not really. I, th- I think I think I'm more trying to develop my my own range of ability and, and my ability to arrange in different styles although to be honest more than that uh, the what drives my eclecticness isn't my own fancy it's whatever people are paying me to do <laughs> to be honest which may include Paul McCartney it may include Britney Spears it may include Tim Panani songs I'm I, I love all of them and I'm happy to do all of them <laughs> Does that mean as well that when, when you get a commission that you, you look at the chorus or the quartet that's likely to sing it and try and temper the song towards their their particular talents? Cause oh, absolutely, yes. Without a doubt. I think that's that's vital. How do you do that if you're starting from scratch? I mean, you can't know every chorus. You've done you've done two or three for, for my chorus, for example, Capital Chorus, and, and lovely songs, all of them, to sing. But, I mean, you can't really have known what we were like when you started off. Not in as much detail as I would for a group that I have a lot more contact and intimacy with but I, I try and find out whatever I can so um, in the case of Capital um, you probably know I, I'm friends with Pepper 
So our former director. Yes, yes, your former director. So she and I would, would just chat about it and, and, and I'd ask her about what she thought the chorus's strengths were, um, whether there was anything in particular she wanted me to highlight about the, the different sections or, anyth- or anything she, she, that, that, that needed to be avoided. Or if failing that, if there's less of a personal link, I'll, I'll see if there are any videos on, on YouTube and just you know, watch videos of the chorus, see, see how they like to perform, what they sound like, if there's anything they excel at or, or things that they don't do so well. Um, yes, I, I, I try and do whatever homework I can. You mentioned Instant Classic and, and meeting them earlier on, and, and in fact, they've taken one of your songs back to the States, haven't they? That was Without a Song, yes. Um, so Without a Song was an eight-part arrangement that I did for Hallmark's 40th anniversary show. So Tim, our director, had the idea. We were singing on the show, and we also had the White Rosettes, who are sort of you know perennial labs champions uh, as our guests on the show. And it was an eight-parter for, for the two choruses. The other guest on our show was Instant Classic, who we'd, bought, we'd flown over from the States. And um, they very kindly said, said they would learn the song to sing it with us so that we could all kind of sing it together at the end as a grand finale. And um, the feedback from them was very supportive, very lovely and positive. And um, two things happened from that. So Cole, the baritone of Instant Classic, asked me if he could take the arrangement and put it on his CD. So Cole did a sort of solo-style album of uh, multi-tracks. Or, or, he, he runs a, a learning track business, and he took a dozen songs and recorded all the parts himself and made a CD. So he, together with Kim Newcomb, who's also a learning track uh, producer, uh, recorded Without a Song and put it on their album, which was very cool and very nice to listen to, uh, for me, certainly. And then Theo, uh, the lead of Instant Classic, asked me if he could take the arrangement and stage it on the BHS stage. So Theo, I think, was in charge of running what's called the Saturday Night Spectacular at BHS this year, which is a sort of mini show they do before the quartet finals. And um, they were looking for a finale, and he messaged me about a fortnight before <laughs> before it was due to happen and said, do you mind if we buy it and use it? And after I picked up my jaw off the floor, I, I said, yes, yes, of course. And um, yeah, and it, I watched the whole thing live on the webcast at sort of stupid o'clock on the morning on 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 Tim and Hannah's uh, living room sofa. Yeah, and it was a wonderful experience. It was, it was, it was surreal more than anything else, to be honest, because I've spent so many years watching the webcast, seeing all these groups that I admire doing, do, you know, singing songs. It just, it just feels like this whole other faraway land. But it was, it, it was very strange to see something that I'd written coming out of the laptop speakers as something on the international stage. It was, it was very cool and a bit scary, but mainly cool. Looking at uh, social media, there were a lot of British barbershoppers for whom seeing your song being performed on that international stage was a, was a joy and a source of pride. Is it something that you count maybe as one of the highlights of your career today? Uh, yeah, probably of my, of, of my arranging career. Um, uh, but I, I think stuff like that is becoming more commonplace for UK arrangers, which is very exciting. I've just got back in from, from New Orleans, which was where the Sweet Adelines convention has just happened. I'm still feeling a little bit jet lagged, uh, but uh, that was that was a, a great week. Uh, but it was very exciting from a arranging point of view because there were a lot of British arrangements on the stage. So I, I was there to support four groups from Region Thirty One. So there were the quartets, Nightfall and Fortuity, and the choruses, Viva Acapella and the Fourth Valley Chorus. Fortuity and Fourth Valley both made the finals, which was great, the top ten. And um, Fortuity sang an arrangement of Little Black Dress, which was arranged by Hannah Briggs. And Fourth Valley, actually, the, their entire finals package was made of in-house arrangements. If I understand correctly, I think they, they did two songs arranged by David Sankster, their director, 
and two other songs arranged by um, Rosalind Johnson, who's their assistant director. What effect then do you think this is going to have on, on British Barbershop? Because for many years we relied on American uh, arrangers, didn't we? Uh, a lot of David Wright arrangements, a lot of arrangements from the Harrington Brothers, then mm. you, you, you had uh, Aaron Dale and, and, and various others. The fact that we're producing more and more of our own, what's, what, what's the impact going to be more widely, do you think? Um, positive, I hope. Um, I, I think it'll it'll add personalization to different groups. Well, one, one of the most fun things about being an arranger in the UK is, is arranging for the groups that are right in front of you. So um, just thinking of the people that you're set to talk to tonight, I, I, I arrange a lot of stuff for Hallmark. Um, Hannah arranges stuff for her own chorus, the Steel City Voices. Uh, Nick's arranged things for his chorus, Spirit of Harmony. Um, Simon, Simon similarly uh, arranges lots of stuff for his own choruses and quartets. I think it's in part responsible for the character of the groups themselves because, you know, repertoire obviously plays a huge part in that. I think it's going to involve a lot of trial and error. If you want things to stick to the wall, you have to allow the freedom to throw a lot of stuff at the wall, uh, probably not of, not all of which will stick. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's very exciting. I think it's a very exciting time to be a barber shopper in the UK and to be an arranger in the UK because there's, there are a lot of, more than ever, there are a lot of groups who want commissioned arrangements and there are a lot of people who are willing and able to do them. Sam Hubbard, to whom it was a great pleasure to talk for the podcast. And as I said right at the beginning, you'll be able to hear from several more young British barbershop arrangers making their mark in our next edition, which I hope will be out before too long. Till then, from me, John Beasley, thank you for listening.